Hi. As you can hear, Janet and Stephanie are out on summer break, and the podcast has been infiltrated by a man. My name is Jason, and I've been helping out as an intern here for the last couple of months. As part of my task, I've listened to every single Asymmetrical Haircuts episode to pick out the best of the best and reproduce them over the summer break. This first episode comes from way back in 2019 and gets at everything Asymmetrical Haircuts is about trying to untangle a complex system of how jurisdiction is able to be applied to the case of forcible transfer in Myanmar, and picks apart whether the same principles can bring other cases into the jurisdiction of the court. Enjoy. Do you know about my dark past as a TV writer? Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hello, welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. It's me, Janet Anderson. I'm here with Stephanie and our special guest for today, Kevin John Heller. Kevin is, oh my goodness, you've got so many titles. I do not. The Associate Professor of International Law at the University of Amsterdam, Professor of Law at the Australian National University. Um, And you're also a regular for us when we need someone to (laughs) quote, because you're really, really good at answering great questions. What are we going to ask him about today, Stephanie? Well, um, we're going to go into very specific ICC territory because there is a kind of um, thing going on with the ICC where um, people are what I call trying to get into the ICC via the back door, mainly in the Myanmar case. And this is um, the uh, military regime in Myanmar started cracking down on the Rohingya Muslim majority and there were a lot of deportations and uh, moving them into Bangladesh, which is an ICC member. Um, I got called a lot uh, about this uh, because Reuters is very much interested in the Myanmar case, also because two Reuters journalists got arrested for actually reporting on um, atrocities in Myanmar. So every kind of sigh that the ICC does with Myanmar (laughs) is I got three calls and then I call Kevin to find out what it means. So we decided to have him on today to explain in a little more depth than I can do in a 600-word word story. Conflict and violence is, is great for all of our careers. Yes, <laughs> in a way, sadly, it's, it's what keeps us going. But do you think this um, term that uh, Stephanie uses, that it's somehow getting the ICC involved via the back door is, is accurate? What, what do you think of that? I, I don't think the ICC would agree <laughs> with that characterization. I think I'm, I'm more inclined... To, uh, to agree with it. I, I certainly don't think it's the kind of jurisdictional basis that was contemplated by the drafters of the Rome Statute. But at the same time, I also don't really have a, I'm sure we'll talk more about, a legal problem with the basic principles. So, well, what is that jurisdictional basis? Well, the jurisdictional basis is, a, you know, is territorial jurisdiction. Uh, what the court says is that uh, part of the crime, if not an element of the crime of forcible deportation, uh, took place on the territory of a state party, Bangladesh. And they acknowledge that most of the acts, and particularly the acts that forcibly displaced the Rohingya, um, took place on Myanmar territory, and Myanmar is not a state party, but that the deportation necessarily involved crossing a state line into Bangladesh, and that because some of the acts took place on Bangladesh, there's traditional territorial jurisdiction. So the heading of jurisdiction is classic, territorial. The basis of finding territorial jurisdiction, again, although I don't disagree with it, is a little bit more 
you know, uh, exotic or esoteric. It's a bit wacky for us to try to explain to people because you imagine, you know, the physical act of deportation is involved somebody getting them over the border. Who's responsible for doing the deportation when they're over the other side of the border? They're already there. But the, the, the idea, I think, is, and Kevin will probably know m more in detail than I do, that in order to have deportation kind of finalized, you have to move them over an international border. And Bangladesh is not really doing anything with the deportation, but it's necessary that they're in another country for it to be deportation. Right. I mean, that's basically what the pretrial chamber said was that the only difference between forcible transfer and deportation is the fact that in the latter you have to cross the state border. So they said since there is a necessary element of deportation that involves crossing a border, then we can say that the acts that kind of make up what we would call the actus reus of, 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 the, uh, of the crime took place on the territory of Bangladesh, as well as taking place in the territory of Myanmar. And in this case, I mean, the prosecution who kind of asked, can we bring this case, only uh, went for deportation, uh, going for the kind of that legal bit of mm -hmm. uh, cross-border. And then the trials chamber said, why not have a look at all this other stuff? Can you explain kind of what the basis for that sure, is? Sure, that one's harder. Yes, <laughs> um, that's, right, why we, so, that's why we invited you. Yes, <laughs> well, come on, you, you can answer that. Um, so basically, they found both persecution and kind of other inhumane acts as a crime against humanity uh, connected to the deportation. And so if you look at, say, the definition of persecution in the Rome Statute, it talks about acts of persecution that are connected to another crime within the jurisdiction of the court. And so what they said was, well, here the persecution is of the Rohingya. Um, and that persecution is connected to another crime against humanity within the jurisdiction of the court, that being the deportation. So they said it doesn't really matter where the acts of persecution take place, because those would have really taken place in Myanmar. The point is there is another crime within the jurisdiction of the court that it's connected to, and that's enough to give the court jurisdiction over persecution as well. So that's how they get to persecution. All right, and then we get to the big question, which is... But we still haven't talked about other inhumane yeah. acts. That's also a different kind of theory. Ah, okay. Use. So what's the theory for other inhumane acts? Then? So there, and again, I'm not sure I agree with it, but it's clever. Um, what they said was that, th that, the, that the Myanmar regime committed the other, with a crime against humanity of other inhumane acts by preventing the Rohingya from returning to their state of nationality. Uh, that basically they kept them forcibly in Bangladesh and would not allow them into Myanmar. And they said that the, the psychological trauma of not only being displaced, but then not being allowed to return to your state of nationality rose to the level of a crime against humanity. And kind of applying the same jurisdictional theory, the acts that amounted to the other inhumane act, which was keeping them in Bangladesh, took place on the territory of Bangladesh, a state party. So once again, they say, you know, a, a, an element of the offense took place on the territory of a state party. And then me being a journalist and going for the most spectacular thing <laughs> ever, I want to go straight for the G word here, because all of the things that you're mentioning are also underlying acts that are often cited in genocide convictions. So could they, through this way, move up to genocide? That's a really good question. Um, so I, I've argued that, at least in theory, 
the court would have jurisdiction over one form of genocide, and that's intentionally subjecting individuals to conditions of life calculated to bring about their destruction. That if they drove them into Bangladesh, knowing or intending that the conditions would be so bad once they were, you know, pushed out of their own country, that they could uh, be expected to eventually die out, that that would be an act of genocide that took place not just in Myanmar, but also in Bangladesh. And so that's kind of, I think, a fairly straightforward application of the theory. Whether it's factually justified, you know, I I don't know. Um, Beyond that, I think it's very difficult to argue that genocide would would, would fall within the jurisdiction of the court. the court seems to be quite clear that they're not talking about effects jurisdiction. They're not saying that any time the effects of a, of a crime are felt on the territory of a state party, that that would give the court jurisdiction. Um, and I think that's the only real way that you could argue other types of genocide. Right. Really, the other acts of genocide take place in Myanmar. Again, they may have the indirect effect of pushing people out of the country, but that's not really an inherent part of the act of genocide, in the same way that that pushing somebody across the border is an inherent part of the the crime against humanity of deportation. And this decision, how does it you know affect other ICC cases? There's now a move to try um, to address Syrian atrocities via Jordan, which is an ICC member with uh, mm-hmm. Syrians who are deported or at least transferred to Jordan. You uh, mentioned there's a, an avenue to maybe look at U.S. Uh, migration issues kind of via Mexico. One, yes. A fanciful one, but there, there's... You like fanciful here at Asymmetrical Haircut. I can explain my fanciful Mexico yes. theory if you would like. Um, I did this just because I hate Donald Trump and the Trump administration and pretty much any government of my country. Um, but there was news reports that suggested that individuals who clearly were American citizens were not being allowed to return from Mexico into the U.S. on, well, they would claim legitimate administrative grounds, questions about their citizenship, but was clearly just a pretext for keeping uh, American nationals of Latino descent uh, out of the country. And so what I argued was, well, that looks an awful lot like what they said about other inhumane acts in the Myanmar situation, that you're taking American nationals and you're causing them the harm of not allowing them to return to their state of nationality uh, for reasons that are based, really, in this case, on their nationality, or, or sorry, on their ethnicity, on the fact that they're Latino. Um, and so if it's, a, if it's a crime against humanity when Myanmar does it to Myanmar citizens, why isn't a crime against humanity when the U.S. does it to U.S. citizens, given that they're being kept from returning on the territory of a state party, as you said, Mexico? Um, what about the Syria-Jordan? Well, I think that's a much more serious... I mean, again, my, my, my U.S. thing was just to try to tease out some of the perhaps disquieting implications of the judgment. Um, The Syria one, I think, is much more legitimate. And and I should say that I've consulted with a couple of the groups that have been making this argument. Um, But basically, the argument is exactly the same one as in, in Myanmar and Bangladesh, that Syria is not a state party. They're not a member of the ICC, but Jordan is uh, by the most recent estimates I saw. There are about 650,000 Syrians who are now in Jordan as a result of the conflict in Syria. It's actually not that 
much less than the number of Rohingya in Bangladesh. Um, if in fact those civilians are in Jordan instead of Syria because they were forcibly displaced because they were deported, then it's exactly the same argument that uh, an, an element of the act of the crime against humanity of deportation took place on Jordanian territory because the Syrians drove them into Jordan. Now, there are some, again, there are some, I think, more, there are trickier factual right. issues. Yeah, the, one of the things that, that rises with me or that I saw is the question of at what point does it become deportation? At what point does it become a choice? That's exactly. always a big argument. I remember from Serbia, Kosovo, and <laughs> well, they just chose to leave. Right, and that's the importance of of, of understanding that the that the pretrial chamber in the Myanmar decision is not adopting effects jurisdiction. Um, they're not saying oh, well, it doesn't really matter why a civilian leaves the country. If it has effects in another, you know, on a state party, that's enough. That's not what they're saying. They're talking about an element or part of the crime taking place on the territory of a state party. So here, if in fact these are civilians who kind of rationally chose to flee the country as a result of the ongoing conflict but weren't actually forcibly displaced from their homes, then um, on at least the, the, the jurisdictional theory that the pretrial chamber adopted, that wouldn't be enough for jurisdiction. You'd have to show that they were, in fact, forcibly displaced. And do we have an idea of what you would need to show to show that you're forcibly displaced rather than, you know, packing your bags yeah. and, and going? We do. I mean, you know, and... International tribunals, and particularly the ICC, tends to take the, the broadest approach to these concepts as possible. Um, you certainly don't have to point a gun at somebody and say, leave your home for there to be forcible displacement. Um, it's not even completely clear whether you have to intend for them to leave their homes. The, the point is, did they have a choice to stay? And if you kind of deprive them of their choice to stay, knowing that the results of your actions will be for them to, to leave, yeah. that's probably enough. Um, so, you know, if it's just they happen to be near fighting between uh, the Assad regime and rebels and left, probably not enough. If, you know, as seems quite likely, both the Assad government and the rebels are, you know, engaging in acts of violence toward communities that will quite naturally lead them to want to not be there anymore. That probably is enough. And there it's interesting. You have, I think you could bring deportation charges against both various rebel groups and against the Assad regime. I think both of them have forcibly displaced civilians. We're talking about some of the major you know, humanitarian, human rights, etc., crises that are going on in the world, ongoing, both both of them, Myanmar and Syria. Um, I suppose this is what the ICC is meant to be set up for, but it's really that, that sense, you know, these are huge things for the ICC to get into. Yes, <laughs> it is. And I think there are both positive and negative aspects of that. Um, you know, it is quite clear that the 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 people who, who dreamt up the ICC thought that these were precisely the kinds of situations that it would deal with. Uh, it is also true that most of the big-ticket situations are not, kind of, quote, technically within the jurisdiction of the court, except through these more kind of esoteric jurisdictional theories. Um, and again, esoteric doesn't mean wrong. It just means not contemplated, per se. So it's difficult to avoid the, you know, inferring that in many ways, this is a court that is kind of desperately trying to be seen as relevant. Um, we could talk forever about 
the, the limitations of the court, the failures of the court, the impotence of the court, and I think all those critiques are completely valid, and I've, I've made many of them. Um, so I wasn't shocked at all when Fatou Bensouda decided to ask for this jurisdictional ruling in the Myanmar situation, because it was an obvious way for the ICC to be seen to be doing something about a situation that most people think the ICC should be doing. Most people you know, you can, until you're blue in the face, you can explain to them, well, if you want to blame someone, blame the Security Council, because they're the ones that only, they have the power to refer to the situation. It doesn't work with most people. They just see lots of civilians dying, international criminal court. Why is why? the court not prosecuting the bad guys? But, um, but it seems very short-sighted because, yes, you get a lot, but maybe that's it. Maybe that's the strategy because, yes, of course, Reuters is splashing this all over the front page. I'm getting really excited about this. <laughs> like, why would the OTP want to take, or the Office of the prosecutor want to take on another case with an unwilling country when they've not done so well. So you should have somebody from the OTP on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not only unwilling countries, it's also budgetary, it's also all the focus that, 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 that is taken up by stuff like this. I mean, is it just then grandstanding? I mean, I think it's a little tiny bit too cynical to say that it's just grandstanding. I mean, I certainly think it is a, a fairly transparent effort to get PR for the court and make it look relevant. Um, I, I'm sure that the OTP really believes that these are crimes that deserve prosecution and really believe that the court does have jurisdiction and really believes that, in fact, there might be some non-negligible chance of actually prosecuting someone. Um, it may very well be that they just hope that perhaps by being seen to be relevant, you know, the, the purse strings will be loosened by, by states that are supporting it. I mean, there should be some states out there who are members of the court who would love to see the ICC get more involved in Myanmar than, say, some other situations like Mali or wherever. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't believe, I don't want to be that cynical. <laughs> no, I think that the prosecutor would love to get her hands on a uh, Myanmar case for all the reasons. But my question is, I guess, would the, the short-term kind of boost of attention not be kind of um, limited by the failure that's almost, I wouldn't say inevitable, but quite likely to follow I, looking at the history of what's going on? Or does that, are we all going to forget um, that did happen and they did, did they just get the short boost of saying we can look at Myanmar and everyone went wow the no, court's really I think you're, I think your point is a really <laughs> important one um, when the prosecutor first submitted the request before we had a judgment you know I, I blogged about this and um, and I, I think I made a couple of points I said my first point was that you know there's no way in hell they're ever going to have a Myanmar government official in the dock at the ICC it's not going to happen. Um, they're going to have zero ability to effectively investigate, much less get their hands on the perpetrators. So that was a major concern because I have a very pragmatic view of, of when the ICC should exercise jurisdiction. Um, beyond that, I said, you know, even if in some way they could have an effective investigation, do we really want the Myanmar situation, the first real international attempts at accountability to be limited to essentially deportation, uh, not to in any way minimize the severity of being, you know, 
kicked out of your home and, and pushed across a border. But, but there's a lot people, else. Yeah. Most people think about genocide. <laughs> they think about mass murder. They think about systematic rape of women. There's a lot of crimes that even under the most robust jurisdictional theory, the court will never be able to investigate. And, and I, again, I'm not an expert on Myanmar. I don't know if you ask the Myanmar people or the Rohingya, for that matter, would you be satisfied with seeing some government officials prosecuted only for deportation? I don't know. Maybe they would say something is better than nothing. But I, I'm concerned at investigations that are from the beginning doomed to not reflect the severity of the crimes in a particular situation. Okay. And to be super niche ICC, um, there is a recent... The ICC itself is niche. So yeah, that's fine. but so I'm getting even worse. <laughs> There is the uh, recent Afghanistan decision where they decided not to open a formal investigation because it wasn't in the interest of justice, because it was unlikely that they would ever have a meaningful investigation or cooperation. And this is coming also from a state member. Does that decision, do you think, impact what would happen to Myanmar in any great way? Or is it just, let's see how that one crumbles and actually works out? That's a really good question. I mean, um, you know, there are a number of, <laughs> of, of uh, you know, intelligent commentators on the ICC, people like Sergei Vasilyev and Dove Jacobs, who have pointed out the irony <laughs> of, you know, granted, two different pretrial chambers, it wasn't the same judges, but the pretrial chamber writ large, <laughs> saying, can't investigate Afghanistan because there's no prospect of investigation, but can investigate Myanmar even though there's probably even less of a chance of investigation. And and I, I mean, from my perspective, you know, yes, we might have a really hard time in Afghanistan investigating, you know, uh, CIA uh, torture. Uh, maybe you have even a difficult time investigating. Uh, crimes committed by Afghan forces. But everybody has an interest in prosecuting the Taliban in Afghanistan to say that that the, the, the OTP has no chance of ever investigating and, and getting their hands on a high-ranking member of the Taliban, I think is just wrong. Um, so at least there are some serious crimes that could probably be investigated in Afghanistan, where I think the number of serious crimes in Myanmar that can be effectively investigated is essentially zero. So it's even worse than the kind of inconsistency of the rulings it kind of gets the situations backward from a kind of factual or, or pragmatic standpoint. So do you think that's also a difference when the judges with one trial chamber not only enthusiastically encouraging the Myanmar, but also saying, why don't you also have a look at this? While on the other side, you have a trial chamber shutting it down, saying, I don't think you want to look at this at all. Yes, I agree. And, and hopefully you have, we'll see, hopefully you have an appeals chamber who understands that they have to resolve all of these issues and... I don't know whether it would be a satisfying way, but the, the, the appeals chamber has to know that they can't have this kind of inconsistency in terms of how the pretrial chamber looks at uh, proprio motu investigations. Um, so hopefully at some point we'll have a ruling that, that tells us what's right. On the show, we like to put also another few questions to our guests. They're the, uh, they're the same away. ones. I'm an open book. Or maybe first address the elephant in the room, which is... Okay. This is a gotcha question. <laughs> no, no. No, we're not going to gotcha question for you. But Kevin, we just wanted to say thank you for agreeing to appear on this show as our token man. <laughs> because um, as you know, 
the it's many female experts that we have, but we just wanted to show that it's okay to be a male expert and we will occasionally reach <laughs> out to men and ask you to to contribute. Um, we love you too. Ah, thanks. I, I, am, I am completely in favor of discriminating against men in terms of your interviews. I think the, this, I use Kevin a lot for my Reuters stories because Kevin is in a way a typical male that I can call. <laughs> and when I call women experts and I say, I want it, you know, this decision was just done a few seconds ago. You know, I need a comment. And they will kind of pedal back and say, I'm an expert in the ICC, but I only know very much about the Katanga case and the victims in that case. So if I have to decide on a Katanga uh, ruling of the judge, it's not really exactly my area of expertise, so I would prefer not to say anything. So we're just going to support women to tell them that, that we're going to ask them questions about their own area, but support them that, that they do have expertise. They yeah. are experts in the but area. Can I comment? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a very it's a very gendered thing. I think I'm more willing to comment on things I don't know about than even most men. But there is definitely a gendered aspect to this. And you know, in my, I've been an academic for 15 years, and I've taught you know thousands of women and thousands of men, and had lots of you know colleagues of both genders. Uh, to me. I don't know exactly how to put it. I don't want to say something that will make me look bad that you might not edit out. Um, you know, I, I think men have an easier time separating their work from their sense of self. That if I say something really stupid and it's categorically wrong, it doesn't harm my psychological well-being in any way. I'm, I'm Kevin. I'm not my opinions. I'll look at it as, oh, I get to now. I can milk sympathy by copying to my mistake and you know saying, look, I can I can reflect critically on myself. Whereas I think you know the the work for for most, and not again, I'm overgeneralizing, but for many women scholars, there's such a close connection between their work and themselves that to expose themselves to criticism. It's a, it feels riskier for them, um, and, and it probably is that they will be penalized say, yeah, yeah, more yeah, yeah. severely for being wrong than a it man. Ca it can actually be a lot riskier, particularly Absolutely. online. You know, if you look at the amount of misogyny that's around, then uh, yeah. it's it's a lot easier to be a male commentator than it is to be a female one. Yeah, I don't really get abused very often, and I, I make much Only more by inflammatory Dove comments. by Dov Jacobs. Yeah, but he's a he's a good friend. So. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I really, I mean, I don't know if that's an impolitic thing to say, but I, I really do think that, that men are just, will, are, are just, it's just easier for them in general to just kind of push away. Um, yeah, and, and know, I think, I mean, you will never get the comment like, oh, you know, why are you commenting on this? You should, right. uh, you should pay more attention to your daughter or you should be in the kitchen cooking or whatever. Yeah, I, would, I would hope that nobody would say that to anyone, but of course they do all the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're just going to treat you as uh, one of our regular contributors. Okay. Um, gender aside and um, ask you uh, the same three questions that we put to all of our contributors. Um, first of all, what's the one thing that no one ever asks you that they should ask you? Oh my God. Um, what, what's the one question that you always think, goodness, they should have asked this? Substantive question or personal question? Substantive, if you can. But if you have personal things you oh, want no, to divulge <laughs> that we haven't asked, we're also um, here. It's that kind of a show where if you want to come clean, this is the moment. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't. In this field of the ICC, do you get all the questions you think people always should, should ask? 
Um, I mean, I think I, I think I generally get asked the questions that I expect to get asked because I probably because I, I am so opinionated and there's not a lot of I don't really have a lot of hidden views <laughs> on the court. If I think something, I will say it. Um, in general, I bemoan the lack of attention to kind of the pragmatic aspects of the court. And I do talk about that whenever I can. But, um, you know, a lot of my work is driven by pragmatism, where I say the the law should be interpreted as X, not because I think X is like the greatest position ever, but because that's the best the ICC can do right now. Um, that's not the way that most people think about the court. They tend to think in absolutes. They tend to think in ideals. Um, they don't like pragmatic concessions. Um, you know, so I'll give you a nerdy, a nerdy example from my work that, you know, I have this, quote, sentence-based theory of complementarity where I could not care less what a state prosecutes uh, a suspect for. It doesn't have to be an international crime. I don't even care if it's a particularly serious ordinary crime. If they're going to put that person in jail for as long as the ICC would put them in jail, I don't see why the court should prosecute them again. So it's um, the whole Al... Uh, the Al-Bashir situation. I, in yeah. fact, I've been meaning to write a little blog post. Kind of, I, I did a, a poll <laughs> on Twitter, but I wanted to write a blog post saying, okay, we all know that Sudan is not going to seriously prosecute Bashir. But if they were, Let's imagine that they had a very serious prosecution for corruption. And as a result of the, the corruption trial, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison with no real possibility of being sprung like six months later. Um, he'll be dead <laughs> before he serves that sentence. Uh, the chances of him even facing the charges that he is getting longer than a 30-year sentence at the ICC is essentially zero. Um, for me, in a perfect world where the court had unlimited resources and unlimited uh, courtrooms and unlimited prosecutors, yeah, prosecute him for an uh, international crime on the basis that international crime has more expressive value than, say, corruption. But that's not the ICC we have. It's not the ICC we will ever have. So for me, not dismissing that there is something different about prosecuting an individual for corruption than genocide, I don't see why the court would ever waste its resources, given that he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail anyway. And that's very much the opposite of the way the complementarity jurisprudence has developed, which has become narrower and narrower and narrower and essentially making it impossible for a state to keep control of a prosecution. So but people don't like talking about those kinds of pragmatics. They don't like concessions to reality. They want always the maximal, most expressive position, even, you know, if you point out that, well, gee, a failed ICC prosecution has zero expressive value. You might have been prosecuting him for a more serious crime, but if you can't actually convict him, you know, is that really like all that progressive and, and good for the court? Um, but those questions I never talk about with anybody. Tell us, what's the one thing that everybody gets wrong about what you do? Oh, that's an easy one. The um, you know, I've been, I've been blogging for, I'm like the granddaddy of, of bloggers. Like we um, should say at Opinio Juris. At Opinio Juris. Like, so I've been blogging at Opinio Juris for almost 14 years, which is like a thousand years in blog years. There was opinion. I, I was not a founding member of Opinio Juris, but I was. Uh, Roger Alford and I were like the first two non-founders to join the blog, and I've written. I think 3,000 blog posts and a couple million blog words. You know, I, I'm on Twitter um, and I have a 
particular style. <laughs> I have mellowed quite a bit over the years, often at the demand of my co-bloggers. Um, you know, where I, I I tend to blog and tweet when I'm angry about something, and, and sometimes I'm not quite as circumspect as I probably should be in my rhetoric. Um, so the most common thing <laughs> uh, is when people meet me for the first time, the most common reaction is, wow, you're a lot nicer in person than I expected you to be. Because they only know me through the kind of hyperbolic, you know, sarcastic rhetoric that I, that I, I, I use in my writing when, like, they don't, they don't see the fact that I can have an incredibly, incredibly tense discussion with someone like, I don't know, Mike Schmidt about IHL. And Mike and I have known each other for years and we're friends and, you know, we hug each other when we see each other and go have beers. It's not, um, I mean, it's not that I don't, take seriously the debates, but I, I try to separate the person from the view. And so, you know, I can have a really strident conversation with somebody and tell them that they're being idiots and that their position is ridiculous and, and still be really good friends with them. Um, Alex Whiting and I have, I mean, we've been really good friends for years. And I don't think anybody would know that by just reading, you know, our tweets. <laughs> um, so I think it's one of the costs of people knowing you only through your, quote, public persona that, you know, maybe f I'm sure many people, their public personas and their private personas are exactly the same, but there can be a gap. And I think that that most people don't know that there's actually a pretty big gap between how I am publicly and, and personally. Um, we'd also like to ask you, um, what have you seen or read recently that you'd like to recommend? It doesn't uh, have to be international law, but it can be. Uh, I don't know. So, I, I mean, I think Black Earth Rising actually um, is, is a really good example. Um, I was really expecting to hate Black Earth Rising because no one's ever done anything that even touches on the ICC in a way that's not an atrocity. And we can talk about crossing lines if you want. Um, so I had very, very low expectations. Um, in terms of Black Earth Rising's use of the ICC. It lived up to my expectations of being an atrocity. Um, it got everything wrong completely, even though Hugo Blick, the writer-director, actually did spend a lot of time at the court talking to people like Fatou. Um, obviously didn't take notes or <laughs> something. Um, but in general, I thought the show was absolutely brilliant. And it did such a spectacular job um, really kind of exploring the complexity of post-Rwandan genocide politics. Um, I, I don't have any friends in the Rwandan government, so I don't know what their response was. I'm pretty sure they would have absolutely hated the miniseries. But it was incredibly, it was riveting in terms of its exploration of Rwandan politics. And I had never seen, you know, outside of, you know, kind of abstract, you know, academic work, such an intelligent discussion of, of the difficulty of dealing with post-atrocity situations when the government in power weren't responsible for the majority of the atrocities, but certainly didn't come to power with clean hands. And that really, I, I hope everybody watches it and doesn't learn anything about the ICC from it, but learns a lot about the Rwandan genocide. I mean, it's only been, you know, 20 years that the ICC's been in position. It's only been, you know, an I don't amount. Like to, I don't like the qualifier only. But okay. okay. It's, okay. <laughs> it's been a limited amount of time that the ICC's been around. It's been a limited amount of time that we've had these international tribunals. And I have the sense that, that they have really started to get into a lot of creative brains. They're any reference to war crimes brings for them the idea of this mm -hmm. 
caught on a hill, not on a hill because it's the Netherlands, but caught, <laughs> caught over there somewhere in the, gully. In, the, in the Hague. Um, and they project onto it all kinds of fantasies. I mean, do you see that? Oh, I think absolutely. And I think it's incredibly pernicious <laughs> in every respect. Um, but this kind of also gets to my own view of international criminal justice, where I, I have very little faith or belief in international tribunals. And I think if international criminal law has a future, it's domestic and perhaps regional, but certainly not international. Um, it drives me absolutely crazy that no matter what the atrocity, no matter what the situation, the first impulse of everyone in the field is always, oh, let's refer it to the ICC or the ICC should get involved. And, you know, I, I would think that if a fire department was called to 15 fires and managed to maybe like put one of the 15 out and even then, you know, the fire came back a few weeks later, you would stop thinking maybe we should call the fire department every time there's a fire. But there, no one ever seems to learn. They don't seem to be able to entertain the possibility that there are other ways of bringing accountability to, to international criminals. And, and I think this kind of pop cultural obsession with international organizations kind of really does re reflect that. Um, and again, that's what I liked about Black Earth Rising. That a, a lot of it is about, you know, domestic prosecutions and yeah. at least threats of domestic prosecution. And, you know, I would like to see you know, a movie about the Habre trial. I mean, you know, you, you want uh, something that happened in international criminal justice that actually allows us to be somewhat optimistic about the future. It's certainly a lot more the Habre trial than anything that the ICC has ever done. But yet, again, perhaps because it's easily representable and people understand it, or just because of it does suck up so much of the oxygen in the room, it's always the ICC. It's always an international tribunal. The one thing that I really did enjoy that they got very right is how the ICC looks and how that kind of IKEA <laughs> international justice on the cheap courtroom looked. Yeah. Like the building, the style of the building they got right. That was about the only thing, in my opinion. But so what were the worst what well, were the worst offenses? The in absolutely your worst offense was when I think it was the French police they show up to arrest the suspect. It might have been the British police. I don't, don't quite remember. British police, yeah. British police. And they say, we are placing you under arrest pursuant to Article 25.3a of the Rome Statute, which is just the definition of perpetration. It had nothing to do with arrest or, or the powers of the court. It's literally a substantive provision of the Rome Statute. And, and I, have, I, just, I literally have no idea how Hugo Blick came up with that one, but I had a good long laugh about that. Um, the fact that the, the British hold an extradition hearing, um, good, yeah. you don't hold an extradition hearing when you're, it's a, it's not extradition and B, you don't have a hearing. It's, it's just, you're surrendering a suspect to the ICC. Um, so that was completely oh, I wrong. Ab I absolutely loved the scene where the prosecutor strolls out with the main victim right next to the entrance of the court. <laughs> completely unprotected, ready to be no shut down. As you do with victims. I mean, I've yeah. never seen Fatou Bensouda stroll around the kind of plaza in front of the ICC, <laughs> and I would love it if she did, because I could Especially if she did it with someone like Katanga. Exactly. Or, yeah. I mean, this, it's every journalist's dream that this is going to yeah, exactly. happen. Exactly. Um, so little bits of artistic license. Yeah, I think that one might be artistic license. What, what, what was another one that... Um, um, Oh, there was the, one of the characters, when they released the guy um, from the ICC, he expresses his surprise that, oh, well, why wasn't he arrested and prosecuted by the UN? 
she he says and i kept thinking which well, u.n yeah like <laughs> a the u.n doesn't arrest people <laughs> and b the, there are no other courts so i'm not sure where they expected this guy to be prosecuted but um again i think they were just trying to you know it was trying to play up the the surprise of the the suspect being released but you know i don't know if you do you know about my dark past as a tv writer yeah. Oh, no. So I, I wrote and produced television for four years between in Hollywood between being a criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles and my first teaching job at the University of Georgia. Um, and, I, and I worked on law and cop shows mostly. And the thing that drove me crazy was not artistic license because you're, you know, you're telling a story. You're not, yeah. It's not a documentary. You're not trying to get everything absolutely right. But why would you engage in completely false artistic license when you could very easily not do something false and be exactly and get exactly the same point across like you didn't really need so so you're really complaining about laziness yeah it's laziness um you know i remember the the person who helped me get into into the into the biz um was one of the executive producers of law and order and he had been uh, a public defender in brooklyn before he became a tv writer and Law and Order was absolutely obsessed with being accurate. They were so obsessed with being accurate that every year that the show was renewed, they would get the conviction statistics of the, the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office that they were a fictional representation of, and they would essentially peg the outcome of the trials during the season to that. So if the Brooklyn DA had a really good year, and had like a 95% conviction rate, about 95% of the defendants that year on the show would be convicted. If they had a really bad year and it was 80%, the show would have more acquittals. I mean, that's how obsessed with accuracy they were. And, and again, sometimes they also deviated and, and because it was necessary to, you know, for the excitement of the show. But they were very careful to never gratuitously get things wrong. Um, and so many shows just... They just don't seem to care at all. Oh, which is your favourite really bad representation of something that uses the term ICC? Oh, well, that, I mean, that's an easy one. That's crossing lines. Yay! I mean, <laughs> Did we love cro- it. Crossing lines is itself a crime against humanity. It's, it's um, on Netflix for everybody who wants to it watch is. it. And actually, to be fair, I actually kind of like the show. If you, if you turn off your ICC brain and you just you do it as like kind of a, a police procedural with really good looking actors shot in really pretty places in Europe, it's kind of a fun show um but i mean you kind of have to appreciate a show that is based on a premise that is entirely false i mean the 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 basic premise of the show is that this elite icc investigative team investigates crimes that cross state borders (laughs) like Like serial i think the first serial killers killers. i watched it uh, because it's now on netflix i missed it the first time around and i was i was checking out something about it because i wanted to see where it was shot what was supposed to be the netherlands and why all the people were supposed to be dutch quote unquote had german accent i found out it was shot in prague uh, but then mainly i saw that you're in the wikipedia entry for crossing i lines. am on the wikipedia <laughs> well because I, I blogged really extensively about the first season of it um and then i finally just kind of became learned helpless and and stopped blogging about it um but it was just i mean really you just you have to appreciate a show that the fundamental premise is completely wrong because again i i think i wrote this in my first blog post about it i'm like why set it at the ICC? It, like, could, you, you it could be set at Europol. Europol. Yeah. It could be set at Interpol. Exactly. It could be or, set or at all this, kinds of you know, places. Special International Criminal Tribunal for Transnational Crime or something. Like you, you could just make something up. And I guess, again, it's playing on, 
I suppose, at least in Europe, kind of name recognition that people would say, oh, ICC, I'm interested in the ICC, so I'm interested in crossing lines. But, oh my God, they would come away with that from a few seasons of that show having no idea what the ICC actually does. And apparently believing that the ICC investigative team would meet in the beer keller lookalike yes. place in a basement in The Hague. Cool offices they had in that building. <laughs> yes. So have you been consulting on any other media projects? Are we going to expect a um, a view um, behind the scenes, uh, making sure that we do get something good coming Mm, out? No, probably not. It's kind of sad, actually, because um, so uh, a friend of mine, a woman who I wrote with on a show called The Court long ago when I was a TV writer, um, she's gone on to be an incredibly successful TV producer, and she produced, um, uh, she created and produced a show called Rizzoli and Isles, um, which is actually oh, yeah, the most, I su- like that. Yeah. <laughs> it was her show, and she it's the most successful show in TBS's history, and um, you know, she was always a very successful writer, but this moved her to another level, and, and for a very long time, and we'll come back to it at some point, we, you know, we pitched um, not an ICC international criminal law show to uh, lots of places. Um, and, and sadly, the, pl- the, the, the network that wanted it the most was the BBC. And it, then it kind of got killed by Black Earth Rising because they just they couldn't do both. The, the development exec couldn't sell like the absolute higher ups on doing two shows about international criminal justice at the same time. Um, and our show was very much deliberately not about <laughs> the ICC. It was called um, Tribunal. Um, and it was really about um, uh, an ad hoc tribunal being set up in Georgia to deal with kind of, um, you know, uh, crimes committed during an ongoing rebellion. Um, and it was dark and gritty and, and smart. And, and, and Janet is a, such a phenomenal writer. It's unbelievable. Um, and we came so close to selling it so many times. And it's just the nature of, of Hollywood. Okay. Well, and then eventually you have to move on to something else. But maybe someday you will see that because we'll always go back to it. Yeah, I'm sure we'd all love to see that. Okay, well, thanks very much, Kevin, for coming on and uh, sharing your history. Well, thank you for having me and, and thank you for, for making me your first token man. Very welcome. And we hope to have some other men, not a lot, because then you won't be the token anymore, but uh, definitely more. And uh, maybe we will ask you back when they get new developments in Myanmar. Happy to come back anytime. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.